Hello, Jonathan. It is great to be with you for the third Sunday of Lent. Hey, Seth. I never know whether to say Happy Lent or not, because it feels a little bit counterproductive at the very least, but Happy Lent. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think there needs to be more happiness in Lent. Here's a question for you. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to be the woman at the well who leaves her jar behind and goes into the city to tell everyone about a guy who knows your whole life story? Or would you want to be the townspeople who had to hear this woman tell about this man who knew her whole life story and pretend like that wasn't super awkward? <laughs> well, yeah, normally our, normally our connections to the scripture passage of the day are loose at best. This feels very, very pointed. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would rather be the townspeople because as awkward as it is to have someone overshare, it would feel more uncomfortable for someone I didn't know to tell me everything about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I think that's where I'm landing on this. Like, yeah, someone, you know, tells a little bit too much. I don't know. We're in pastoral ministry. That happens all the time. For someone to come and read me like a book. Oh, I both like, tell me more and get away from me. Yeah. What about you? See, I would want to be the woman who knows all about me. Because I think that would at least A, be interesting. And I'd be intrigued. But especially since there's no ancient Facebook. I'd be like, how does this person know this because now i'm just like wow they just stalked me which is creepy but i kind of get it but in the ancient world i'd be like this is wild also confession i i asked chat gpt to write this question and this is what it came up with that was gonna be my follow-up question <laughs> it's it's like a decent question yeah but it was it's just longer than normal it was really and long. I'm glad as someone who works in education that I was able to pick up on that. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can tell. Well, thanks for entertaining ChatGPT's question. And yeah. I feel like we're going to be doing it for the rest of our lives. So, Okay, this is getting weird now. <laughs> well, how about I, I turn to a different GPT in the gospel particular text... <laughs> That we have set for us today. <laughs> okay. This is John chapter 4 verses 5 through 26 from the Common English Bible. Now he, being Jesus, came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, Why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? The Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. 
Well, Jesus responded, If you recognized God's gift and who is saying to you, Give me some water to drink, you would be asking him, and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave this well to us, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You're right to say, I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You've had five husbands, and the man you are with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. The woman said, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it's necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here when worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit, and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks with you. Well, thanks for reading all that. While you were reading that, besides growing thirsty yourself, what else did you notice? It's just so interesting, the lenses that I've heard this story interpreted through that are all about shaming this woman for her sexual promiscuity. And I don't know that it's... I'm sure I've heard this interpretation before as well. But in hearing the exchange about this woman's husband, I didn't hear it this time as a statement of promiscuity, but a statement of grief. You know, marriage was not... I mean, certainly we know from elsewhere in John and elsewhere in the Gospels and Scripture that marriage was important. But it was primarily a, a covenant relationship that had to do with finances and, or if not finances, security. And so I don't know if it's just a lingering question. Is this woman a widow five times over and is now, you know, staying in the home of someone in the community who has space for her, who's not her husband? I know that there's a lot of scholarship around why was she coming to the well at the hottest part of the day? Why would she not be living with someone who is her husband? But I think we've insisted on that lens of 
oh my goodness, look at this woman. She's a whore, and Jesus is ta- and Jesus is talking to her. What if this is an example of someone who has experienced unbelievable grief, and that's put her in a very vulnerable situation? And honestly, that feels more like Jesus to me. Not to say that a woman engrossed in sexual scandal wouldn't be controversial or wouldn't be appropriate for Jesus to approach because he had a tendency to upend all those expectations, as he's doing here. But I don't think it has to be that for the story to be impactful. I don't know. That's just it's just my reaction. I have no scholar or other scholarship to back that up, but in this reading, I just I, that landed with me differently. Yeah, I think you're recognizing like the lenses that we've often used to interpret this passage in which like the woman is like promiscuous. And I don't know where that comes from. Like it just says like she has you know, she's she has had five husbands. And we're all like, oh, I guess she's a serial cheater then. Which is interesting because I think that says much more about us as the reader than it does about the woman. Yeah. I, al- I also liked your point about, like, this woman who, you know, might be grieving the loss of, of five husbands who might who might be living with somebody in the community who's taking care of her and has an extra room. Like, this woman might might be on the, like, the brink of survival. And that's, you know, who Jesus comes to see and talks with and offers living water. I like this idea that Jesus comes to someone who is, who's struggling. I like that a lot. And, you know, I don't have any scholarship on my side either, but I think, you know, kind of skewing some of the things that we've been told about this passage can help us to see it uh, in a new way. That can be almost its own living water, maybe. Hmm. One, it's also hard for me not to make the connections to the themes of our Lenten series, which I'm sure you've got some wonderful thoughts and questions to transition to. Um, But on the theme of the world around us, caring for it and stewarding it, um, I've also heard this passage interpreted as water on earth doesn't matter. Jesus offers us living water, this almost separatist or disembodied it's heresy. It's Gnosticism, yeah, right? The yeah. rejection, the rejection of material things. Um, but it also has translated to a lot of harmful policies, harmful interactions among and between communities. This idea that the physical, material, natural world doesn't really matter. Usually, because God's coming to destroy it all anyway. So that's just another another angle that I'm hearing here, and think it's important that that is intersecting here with the story of Jesus, God in the flesh, encountering not the mayor of the town or the town treasurer, but maybe, in our speculation, 
the person on the last lowest rung of the social ladder in this community. Yeah, we at least know she's an outcast in one way, and that's that she's a Samaritan woman as opposed to a Jew. Even John's gospel and the translators of the Common English Bible are nice, so they put it in parentheses for us. But they they just note that the Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. So, like, we know at least in one way that she's an outcast. And then in our reading, it, there's there's more layers that pile on. Like, there's this intersection of, first, she's a Samaritan, and she's a woman, you know, and maybe she's a widow, and maybe she's been she's been divorced and left by her husband. So we see all these different ways that this woman is kind of is ostracized and pushed out. And I was thinking, I think this might help us transition, but I was thinking about, you know, if if you're this ostracized outcast woman you know, living with someone in the community who has a little bit extra room and someone offered you living water wouldn't you take it literally like she does like I was just thinking like if you're really thirsty like physically that's that's where my mind would go immediately so I think sometimes like we read this it's like, oh, I can't believe she didn't get it. Especially somewhere, you know, like Jerusalem, where it's like pretty dry. At least in, in most of Israel. So I looked this up. Now these are these are current statistics, so maybe it's a little bit different in the ancient world, but I think like this at least puts it a little bit in perspective. But Israel averages like about twenty-two inches of rain every year. In their rain, primarily in their rainy season from October to April, and then it doesn't rain much um, in what would be like our summer. And in both York, Pennsylvania, and Richmond, Virginia, we get about 43 inches of rain a year, so we would get twice as much. And then I thought, what's like a really rainy place? Seattle. Yeah. So I, <laughs> so I looked it up. And they get 39 inches of rain every year. And I thought, oh, it rains more here and in Richmond than it does in Seattle. I was like, and I looked it up multiple places because I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And, like, and that seemed that, to be true. That's so weird. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Pick, I would have never picked. I mean, it has. it does rain a lot here. But I'm like... Yeah. Seattle just, I guess it's just a reputation that it needs to uphold. Yeah, that's what I thought. I was like, I can't believe that. So I looked it up a couple places. That's wild. So anyway, all that to say, it rains more in York, Pennsylvania and Richmond, Virginia than in Seattle. And in all of those places, it's still raining about twice as much as it does in Jerusalem. So, so literal physical water... Like is so important there. There's, I mean, there's obviously a lot going on in this passage. It is, it is right to be skeptical of anything written about a conflicting relationship that is only representative of one perspective in that conflicting relationship. Like, if Romeo and Juliet was only written 
you know, from the perspective of the Montagues or the Capulets, like you'd get a very <laughs> different understanding of the story, even of the ending, than you do when you kind of have a at least a sense of what both sides or two of the sides are in the story. And so hearing this and all this stuff about, well, remember, Jews and Samaritans don't associate with each other. Like, it feels like there are ways to interpret this and receive some of that. But do you get the sense that, I mean, we know that Jesus makes these connections in John to things, you know, say these I am statements. And this is at least in that, in that vein, uh, do you think how i mean how central do you think the lack of water is to this story of the encounter being later which we didn't get to read but later so impactful to the people in this woman's in the city in sikar who believe her it's like wait water where <laughs> you know like <laughs> i don't know i just i guess i just yeah. haven't taken on that lens of you know what feels what feels the most compelling there you know yeah you know i i'll be honest i hadn't considered that that like one of the things that maybe makes jesus so compelling to them is that like he can offer water in a place that's really dry and arid but i think that that you're probably right i mean the temptation is always to make these stories so spiritual when like they're also about you know people's lived everyday reality and i think that gets back to your question of like if you were thirsty wouldn't you think jesus was speaking <laughs> speaking literally too yeah yeah and there's just a tremendous amount of people this this might be obvious to some of our our listeners, if not most of them, but there's just a tremendous amount of people in the world who are still thirsty. So mm. I have a co- I have a quiz for you. Just three oh, questions. Wow. So there are about 7.8 billion people in the world today. How many people do not have access to clean water? And it's multiple choice. So okay. I'm going to help you a little bit. A, 2.4 billion B, 3 billion, or C, 4 billion. All of them have a B. Billion. 2.4, 3, or 4. Is that right? 2.2, 3, or 4. But yes. You were point... You were only point one billion off. Only 200 million away. (laughs) Um, Yes. I'm going to go with 3 billion... It's a little bit better than that. It's A, which is still okay. not good. Two point. No, I should have known since it was billion. the only one with the decimal. <laughs> it was the only different one. Okay, that's still egregious. I mean, that's still what? More than 25% of the world's population? Almost yeah. a third? Exactly. Isn't that crazy? Okay. Another one. And this is worldwide again. There's what? more? <laughs> <laughs> That sounded like, is it cake? If you ever, if you ever see that show on Netflix. I have. And now I regret everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, what percentage of schools 
Around the whole world, what percentage of schools lack hand-washing facilities that have both water and soap? A, 32%, B, 40%, or C, 47%? I'm going to go 47%. I think this one's high. Yep, you're right. Wow. Yeah, that, that one, I mean, all of them are bad, but that one especially... Just because it tugs at my heartstrings because it's children. But apparently, this is this is from the World Health Organization and UNICEF. But 47% of schools worldwide don't have hand-washing facilities with both soap and water. Mm. And that affects roughly 900 million school-age children. Wow. And at least one-third of those schools didn't have any space for kids to wash their hands at all like it's not that there's a sink and the water's not clean it's that like they don't even have a sink Mm. where they could wash their hands one one final question how much water does the average american family use per day at home a 50 gallons b 300 gallons or c 500 gallons I'm going to go in the middle. I'm going to go for 300. Nailed it. Ding, 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 ding. The average American family uses 300 gallons. 300 gallons. gallons. Every gosh, I was day. thinking about things things that I've done today, like run the dishwasher, do a load of laundry, take a shower, give my dog a bath. Yeah, it's amazing to me. And just, I've done a lot of the same things you've done today. The only thing I didn't do is wash my dog but i need to but i ran the dishwasher and i took a shower and just like you know i shut the water off when i brush my teeth but like i still use a ton of water when i brush my teeth like i don't even think about it otherwise the only thing i'm not doing with water or at least not doing enough of is drinking it i should drink more water <laughs> well jonathan thanks for thanks for playing along you, you did a really good job Crush that one. That's a yeah. win on wait, wait, don't tell me, so I'll take it. Oh yeah. No, that was good. These these are like these are hard questions, I think. I was only eight hundred million off on the first one too. So. Yeah, I mean <laughs> really pretty close. close. Really. But the point I wanted to make with the quiz is that this woman's experience of living in a you know, a, an arid place where you have to go to the well and draw water that you know is a might be away from your house and then you have to get it and carry it back home like is still true for lots of people in the world that her experience isn't unique to the ancient world it was also true today even you know even though i use so much water an average of 300 gallons there's people who have to work much harder for it and i think it's important for us to remember here too seth that um, these numbers feel very unapproachable, but they also feel very other. Like, you know, I think of the village where I stayed during my rural homestay in rural Uganda, like where we had to walk to get water for us to have. And I think that's where my mind goes. It's where our minds go. We don't think of Flint, Michigan or Jackson, Mississippi or all these spaces where Just around the corner, our neighbors are maybe being poisoned. 
because they've been told they can trust water that is actually not safe for them at all. And so I just, I think it's my, uh, important for us to be mindful of how close to home this affects us as well. Yeah, there's this strange paradox, for me at least, that as like the numbers get bigger, I become more numb to them. So when yeah. I just hear like 2.2 billion, I'm just like, oh no, that's like, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of billion. And I just, yeah, and then I just kind of go, oh, okay, like, yeah, and like in some way the, the numbers as they grow become even less personal. It's literally our neighbors here in the United States, but across the world. So all that to say, I just think it's difficult to even think about living water when you don't have traditional, safe, body-sustaining, potable water like a lot of people don't have today. So the challenge, I guess, is to, I think, is to, to address both of them, not just to address... This, this lack of living water, like we've sometimes heard sermons do. And I don't know if just giving people water, providing them water, is, you know, is good enough either. I think like in some way we need to sustain them emotionally. And I think that involves spiritually, you know, making sure that people know that they're cared about, that they have a community around them. Just, just water isn't enough. But certainly not having water isn't good enough either. Jonathan, I tried to make this a sort of on on the ground as I could. I tried to I tried to do the opposite of what I've heard a lot of people do with this mm, passage. Yeah. And that's like I appreciate just, that a lot. To just spiritualize it completely. Yeah. So I wanted to do a reading that was like that was embedded with in the ground. That like involved the well almost. So with that, will you pray with me? I'd love that. Gracious God, in the waters of baptism, we are washed clean. But in the world, there are lots of people and places without water to do any wash. So we ask that you be with them. That you empower our efforts to provide clean water throughout the world. But we also ask that our efforts don't end there. And help us to establish relationships and connections with our neighbors who are thirsty, knowing that they thirst to be loved. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who, when he was pierced on the cross, bled blood and water. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on this Lenten journey. We're so glad you're part of it with us. In two weeks, for the fifth Sunday of Lent, we're going to take a look at one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, which I think we've talked about on this podcast before, Ezekiel 37, talking about the Valley of Dry Bones. Yeah. I don't know why I did that, Dad. <laughs> I'm excited, too. But, Seth, thanks for walking us through that story. Thanks for helping me tell it. Yay, dust. Yay, dust.